Let's worship the Lord in the Word. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, if you will. Matthew chapter 7. As we continue our series on Sunday morning entitled, The Kingdom of God. Kingdom of Heaven. Matthew chapter 7. And we pick it up in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot uh, bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Every time I read that, I think of Dr. Seuss for some reason. As we come to the second of the four warnings that are here at the end of the Sermon of the Mount... Jesus is making it clear now of the application and he's also now warning them that others will arise and try to deceive them by leading them away from God and leading them into falsehood. To understand the real implications of this warning, we must travel back to the Old Testament. To truly understand how the recipients of this sermon that Jesus was giving received it at the time in which he gave it. It will also allow us to know and to understand what exactly bad fruit looks like that we may identify it. Let's travel back, if you will, in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy and let's begin in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. There is no doubt that in the Jewish mindset, the great hero of the Old Testament was none other than Moses himself. Of course, through Moses, God gave them the covenant which governed not only their individual lives, but their entire nation. The Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament, the law. It governed the governance, it governed the ceremonial, it governed the individual, And within it, a prophecy is found, a promise of Moses, that one would follow him. And we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. And this is a prophecy that was key to the understanding of the coming Messiah in the minds of the religious leaders, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, to allow them to identify the Messiah and who was to come. And Moses says to us in Deuteronomy, he says, The Lord your God, verse 15, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all your desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, 
in the day of your assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put in uh, my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them, and I command him. All that I command him. Excuse me. In verse 19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he will speak in my name, I will inquire it of him. This prediction, this prophecy, speaks of one coming, and Moses calls him a prophet, but we know that, of course, Jesus was much more than that. But the idea of the prophet in the Old Testament meant that this individual had the authority to speak on behalf of God the Father. And here clearly, God the Father says to those who are reading this, uh, saying this to Moses to allow him to convey it to you and I today, that he himself will put his words within the mouth of this individual. And all must hear. And those who do not hear will be held accountable. Now he also promises here within this prophecy the true fulfillment of Jesus' first coming, the death and sacrifice and atonement for the sins of the world. When the children of Israel made their, their way through the wilderness and found themselves in Horeb at Mount Sinai, they discovered that the holiness of God was before them. And they were unable to approach God. They were unable to come into God's presence due to His holiness. And He forbade anyone to come near the foot of the mountain. And there was this degree of separation. There was this uh, knowing that they had sinned before their God and their God was perfect and could not have that sin before Him. So God said it was good that they realized this fact. But he says that he will send one, one that will bridge that gap, one who will fulfill all that God has desired to fulfill through the coming Messiah. Bridging that gap of sin, allowing us to once again enter into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between man and God the one and only one that is able to provide for us a way to redemption. To bridge this gulf, this divide between fallen man and holy God, this individual would do just that. Now Moses says something very interesting here in this text. He says that the prophet will be like him. What was unique about Moses? For we know that many prophets came after Moses. Of course, Ezekiel and Daniel and uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah and, and, uh, and the rest of the, of the band. Uh, they all came after Moses. So what was unique about this one coming that was going to require the heathens of each and every one who heard him? Well, that uniqueness is actually found in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, the book of Numbers. If you turn there with me, 
Deuteronomy, Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. There was a uniqueness between Moses and God, a uniqueness that the other prophets did not have. And that uniqueness is found here. In verse 6 of chapter 12 of the book of Numbers, And then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses, for he is faithful in all my house, and I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses held this unique position that what he received from the Lord, he received directly, face to face. The only time that we see this spoken of concerning a prophet of God, the one who comes after Moses, who will fulfill the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 18, is one who, like Moses, received directly from the Father face to face, and that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Being with God the Father from the very beginning, Jesus was never created. He is the second head of the Trinity. He is God. And Peter made this abundantly clear in Acts chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, and I, I apologize for having you flip today, but I felt that your fingers needed exercise. With all of the quarantine going on, we need some movement. In Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, it is clearly stated that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of this prophecy. In verse 22, chapter 3 of the book of Acts, For Moses truly said to the Father, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, in whom you shall hear in all things whatever he has to say to you. And it shall be that, in, that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And so... Jesus is now directly identified in chapter 3 of the book of Acts as the fulfillment of that prophecy. But throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was plagued with false prophets. As Ezekiel stated, individuals speaking from their own heart, for their own good and for their own means. Individuals that sold their service to tell kings what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. And Jesus knew that the Jewish people would be inundated. In fact, we have recorded for us in the book of Acts two individuals, Thaddeus and Jesus, uh, Bar-Jesus, who both were false prophets who arose during the time after the ascension, during the time of the apostles, on the earth, who drew men and women away from God, predicted things that did not come to pass. And we are warned of the detriment that they actually inflicted upon the nation of Israel. 
But the Bible goes one step farther. It tells us that false prophets in the last day will arise, climaxing in the person of the Antichrist, to be preceded by the false prophet, to parallel and to mimic the manner in which the way of Jesus was prepared by John the Baptist. So the false prophet will prepare the way for the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will then precede him. And the whole world will come under the deception of the Antichrist. But Jesus said, beware of false prophets. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. The word beware not only holds a warning, but it actually is written to us to provoke us into action. We should be looking for false prophets, to be aware of them, to notice them, to identify them. Because, as we will discover in the latter portion of verse 15, though they may appear to be as sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Satan, whenever he comes against the church, he does so in one of two ways. He comes against the church from the outside, where the secular world will persecute the church, try to stop that momentum in which God is carrying the church through the power of the Spirit. But when that fails, Satan doesn't leave it there. He then tries to destroy the work of God from the inside. This is why Paul the Apostle, when he was in Acts chapter 20 in the city of Ephesus, warned the elders of Ephesus, know that when I leave, wolves will appear amongst you in sheep's clothing. He told them that the attack would come from the inside out. And therefore we must be aware, Jude warns us, that certain men crept in unnoticed amongst the church for the purpose of deceiving the church, stumbling the church, setting the church to derail. We must be aware, and I believe that as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we must be more aware. We must be discerning individuals, and there's only one way to become a discerning individual, and that is by knowing the truth, knowing the Word of God. The Word of God will equip you. It will allow you to discern right from wrong, truth from error, and so forth. Now, there are many things as Christians that we can agree to disagree upon and still remain in fellowship with one another. We're not all going to agree on the exact same things, on the, on the exact same subjects. But those areas that we are at liberty to disagree must not clearly contradict the Scripture. It must clearly not contradict the doctrine and of the identity of Jesus Christ. For example, the fact that He was God. The deity of Jesus Christ would be something that would separate us from those who may not acknowledge that. When it comes to character and morality, those who succumb to the world and say that the world's standard for morality is acceptable for the Christian and the biblical standard is no longer uh, applicable to us today, those are individuals that we would have to disagree with. 
But there may be other brothers and sisters who believe that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer in operation in the church today. And I may feel the other way, that they are still in operation for the edification of the brethren. That's something that we can agree to disagree upon. But there will come false teachers and false prophets. And we see more and more now heading over to the theological bastion of truth, YouTube, we find and discover that everyone now has a platform to share the dreams that they've had, the prophecies that they've been given, and then when those dreams and prophecies do not come to fruition the way they said they would, they just remove the video from YouTube. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But the question then becomes, how shall we know? How shall we know? Again, an understanding of the plague of the false prophet in the Old Testament will help us immensely. And there are some great stories between the prophets of God and the prophets of the pagan world. One of my favorite is the one of Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, when he goes against the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, trying to prove and display that the God in whom they serve is the one true God. So they decide to go up on two different mountains. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. And whichever uh, one the God of those prophets hear their plea and light the sacrificial fire, that one will be the one who is the one true God. So Elijah... and. You got to love Elijah. I think he's from Chicago. Uh, I really do. He's like, okay, you know, you you, you go do your thing, you 400, go up on your mountain, build your little fire, you know, take some sticks with you. And once they get up there, they have to then get their God's attention. So they're wailing and crying and cutting themselves, the Bible says, in hopes to uh, allure their God to their attention. And they begin to mourn and and so forth. And then Elijah does what every good Christian was. He eggs them on. He trash talks them from the other mountain. Hey, is your God sleeping? And there's even the Hebrew, and excuse me, is your God in the bathroom that he can't come out and light the fire? And of course, you know the story. Elijah just called up to God. And of course, the sacrificial area was lit And it showed that God was the one true God. But there's another story in chapter 22 of Kings that I love also. It's a conversation between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And they they want to take back from Aram the city of Ramoth-Gilead. And so they want to inquire of God if they are meant to do so or not, or will they be defeated, or will they be victorious in their endeavor? And so these hundreds of prophets are gathered, and they all say, go for it. But that wasn't setting to the king. He wanted to know for sure. This is one of the, area, one of the occasions, I should say, that Israel and Judah was getting along with one another. They said to them, so is there a prophet left from the one true God that we can inquire of? And and I love what Ahab says. Yeah, there's one, Micaiah, but you know, 
I don't consult him anymore because every single time I do, he doesn't tell me what I want to hear. He tells me what I need to hear. He always says something bad, so I don't even consult the guy anymore. And sure enough, that's the one in whom they call then to consult and to proceed. But they were riddled with false prophets. When it comes to the book of Jeremiah, the one lonely voice crying out to the people that we must repent, he was drowned out by a chorus of false prophets who were saying, peace, peace, everything's good, we don't have to do anything, everything's great. And over and over again, the people were stumbled by these false prophets. And Ezekiel tells us that they prophesy not from the Lord, but from their own heart, speaking their own words and not the words of the Lord. But then that brings us back to our text in Matthew's Gospel. How then shall we know the true from the false? Well, Jesus here gives us what I believe was a common proverbial saying at that time. And he brings new understanding and definition to it. He says, first of all, understand that they're going to come in in like sheep. They're going to look like one of us, but inwardly they are not of us at all. They are ravishing wolves. Now, Shepherds at that time would often bring their sheep to a lowland to allow them to graze and so forth, and then they would go up onto the side of the mountain and be able then to look down from an aerial view of the entire pasture and, of course, the sheep there, his, his flock within it. Now, from that distance, a wolf in that area of the world at that time had very similar colors to that of a sheep. And so it was difficult to see until the wolf turned. The wolf would often sneak into the middle of the sheep and then lay there, according to those who are shepherd experts. I I live in Schaumburg. I know nothing about shepherding. So I have to take the words of the experts. But that being said, it wasn't until the wolf turned on the sheep that the shepherd could then see that it was a wolf amongst them. And so this is the imagery that Jesus is pulling forward to help people identify, to know that there is a serious concern amongst these false prophets. But then, in verse 16, he goes on to say, you will know them by their fruits. And then he goes on to illustrate that by saying, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I said to myself, I said, well, what? do the fruit actually look like? Again, growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, I am not an agricultural guy. We have individuals in the church who are farmers, and they can tell if it's corn or a tomato grown before the produce is even produced. I wouldn't know one from the other. For me, they all look like dandelions until they tell me otherwise. But... There were two distinct qualities that they, as the original hearers, would have identified as fruit in which they could look for that would be bad. Now, he's stating that which the prophet produces, that which comes from his heart, so the mouth speaks. 
But what were those two identifying aspects? One is found back in Deuteronomy 13. And that is that the false prophet would lead them away from the one true God, number one. That the false prophet would lead them away from the one true God into other things, whatever that may be. The second is found in Deuteronomy 18. And that is that the prophet would predict something, and if it did not come to pass, God says that that prophet must then be dealt with harshly, stoned to death, for the false prophet in which he has brought forward. God says that if they prophesy something and it does not come to pass, and they do so in my name, I hold them accountable for whatever I state for my prophet to say that will happen, will happen. 100% return, not like Nostradamus, who is like at 71%, maybe even less by now. But these were the two characteristics. Number one, outlined in Deuteronomy 13, the false prophet leading people away from the one true God. Number two, predicting something that is going to happen that does not happen, and the prophet has said, thus says the Lord. That is the bad fruit that they would have looked for to discover if these prophets are true or not. Now let us understand that what is at stake here is truly identifying Jesus as the prophet in whom Moses spoke of. To help those who were witnessing what what was happening in front of them through the life of Jesus and to qualify the words in which he spoke, Jesus, in every occasion, identified himself with the prophetic fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, the prediction of Moses. This is why they came after Jesus, continuously calling him a false prophet. The religious leaders wanted to... uh, put that upon his neck as a yoke to have the people, the populace, dismiss his words, dismiss his actions. But of course, they were incapable of doing so. Of course, all of this came to a head when the Romans hung the sign at the head of the cross saying, King of Kings, uh, King of the Jews, I should say. And Jesus wanted them to know who he was. And he wanted them to be able to distinguish him from the false prophets that are out there. And he goes on to illustrate this fact when he states here in verse 17. He says, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You can identify them. See them for who they truly are. Now, in the examples in which Jesus uses, there is a commonality that we must Uh, discuss to help us understand that the original here of the sermon would have identified these sayings very clearly. One writes, he says, from a distance, the little blackberries on buckthorn could be mistaken for grapes. Again, from a distance, 
An individual could look into a buckthorn and see these little tiny blackberries and think they were grapes about to be produced. It wasn't until they got up onto the vine that they saw that these were not fruits at all. And the flowers on certain thistle trees might deceive one into thinking figs were about to grow. So there's a deception wrapped in all of this. These individuals would have identified those sayings and they would have thought of those illustrations and realized that unless we scrutinize to a certain degree, we may be mistaken in the identity of the individual himself. Now Luke adds in Luke 6.45, when he writes and says, A good man out of the good treasures of his heart bring forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart bring forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. These false prophets, individuals that number one are to lead people astray, and number two, predict things on behalf of God that do not come to pass, and therefore confusing and stumbling the individuals who have received these and heard these things. As Christianity went throughout the entire world, the office of prophet changed. As one of the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy is still a gift that the Spirit can give today, but not in the same capacity as that of the Old Testament when individuals were anointed to speak on behalf of God. There are no prophecies being given today to anyone to be added to the Word of God. The Word of God is complete. It's entire. It's settled. If someone says to you that they have a new revelation or they're going to offer a new book of the Bible, you know, the book of First Eric or the book of First Opinions, just write it off. Prophecy in that regard does not work that way anymore. It is the speaking of the Word of God in most cases and there may be those individual times where it's accompanied with the word of knowledge where someone is given some insight specifically, not globally, not communally, but specifically. But even those things are meant to be tested in all things. Now, I often wonder as I'm reading through the Sermon of the Mount who Jesus may have been referring to. Is this a global concern, meaning that there was an application for the text at the time of Jesus and therefore it goes on in and through the church and to the, his, the point of his return? Or was there someone specifically that he was directing this teaching to? I want to throw this out to you. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, we realize that the antagonists throughout the Sermon of the Mount are the religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think it's interesting that in Matthew, the same gospel, as we make our way to chapter 12, starting in verse 33, notice with me the language in which Matthew uses and who he applies them to. He says in verse 33, 
after being challenged by the Pharisees in verse 24. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Something very similar to what we just read. Then in rebuking of the religious leaders, Jesus goes on to say, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart bring forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasures bring forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will be given account of it in that day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And of course, he's referring and he's speaking with in the context to the religious leaders. The religious leaders were seen by the people as God's representatives. Throughout the Old Testament, a prophet was often consulted to speak on behalf of God, to give insight into a certain subject or a certain circumstance that wisdom was needed before one could proceed. By the time the religious leaders came into play during the first coming of Jesus Christ, there was a 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew, where a prophet had not emerged in Israel during that entire time. Though the events of that time is found in Daniel chapter 11. However, though, because of the silence and because of the lack of uh, prophetic activity, the religious leaders in the eyes of the people assumed a role as if they were the instruments speaking on behalf of God. And so Jesus is now challenging them. And this is consistent thinking when you think about Jesus' rebuke later on in the Gospel of Matthew when he states to them, not only do you not enter into the kingdom of God, but those who follow you don't either. Because they were leading them in the direct opposite path of the narrow way that Jesus was establishing through himself. So I think it is interesting to consider that the religious leaders were playing a role or assumed a role or allowed that persona to be uh, ex, uh, believed by those who witnessed them when in actuality they never had that authority. And, of course, what they leveraged against Jesus time and time again was the fact that he was a false prophet. Well, let's fast forward to 2021. We've been back in history for the majority of our time together this morning. Last year, we saw a resurgence of dreams and prophetic words being given concerning, of course, the re-election of Donald Trump. And I was asked constantly, videos were sent to me over and over and over again, these individuals were often given dreams, they stated. And of course, the dream was like something out of uh, a fantasy world. 
It was, there was so much ambiguity to it. It was like looking at an abstract piece of art, thinking that you're seeing a face when in actuality the artist is trying to display before you energy. <laughs> you, you couldn't make heads or tails out of it. But then they would give this elaborate interpretation, saying that this is what God meant. Of course, he said in the Old Testament that he would speak to his prophets uh, through dreams. And of course, this is often the vehicle that is used or credited for the visions in which these people have. However, though, when these dreams do not come to pass, it disqualifies it from being a revelation from God. However, though, in certain denominational uh, circles, (laughs) I almost said circus, (laughs) uh, circles, they then justify it by saying, well, God gave me the dream, but I interpreted it improperly. (laughs) Good to know that the message was lost in translation. I never saw an Old Testament prophet say, you know, the Lord spoke to me, but I didn't quite understand. He spoke to me in Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish, you know. Never happened. And one right after another, when the, the interpretation was not fulfilled, they justified it by saying that they improperly interpreted. Yeah, they improperly ter- interpreted, and the dream that they had was probably not originated from God, but the burrito that they ate earlier that night. But then there were others who said that God clearly spoke to them and told them, this is what's going to happen. And it didn't come to happen, of course. And then they begin their campaign of justifying their actions, one right after another. My favorite justification is the fact that the reason the prophecy was not fulfilled is because we all didn't believe it together. Isn't that great? Oh, darn it, it's my fault, you know, because I didn't believe it. God never worked that way through the prophets, never. It never was a conditional prophet, uh, prophecy made, therefore having to be received and then being fulfilled. The second was the fact that they would say that they were simply wrong and they simply needed to repent But I wondered, I looked on their church's website and I didn't see the stoning uh, scheduled any time after that. But here's what really concerned me. It would be one thing if these YouTube videos were posted and nobody watched them. But many of them had over a million views. People looking for answers. People looking to God. People looking for insight and revelation. I can't imagine the number of people who have believed these things because they weren't discerning. They didn't realize that God didn't work that way and then were gravely disappointed in the lack of its fulfillment. It's tragic to me. And the one thing that I found common in all of these false prophecies and false prophets is this. Nobody wanted to take responsibility for what they had done. And it was tragic. It was absolutely tragic. So if you don't know where I stand on the issue, um, maybe you do now. 
Peter tells us, though, that what we are going to have to be concerned with is no longer the emergence of false prophets such as that, but even more detrimental to the church will be false teachers. False teachers. He warns us in 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. I'll read a couple of the verses for you. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you, with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction has not been slumber. Jude warned us that these men would creep in unnoticed. In fact, at the beginning of his letter, he begins by saying this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once uh, for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ." John warns us in 1 John 4.1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, how do we do so? We discover the error of the teaching. We discover the false nature of the prophet by knowing the truth. On your lap, your Bible, reading it from Genesis to Revelation, will equip you to know truth from error. It will allow you to see the lie from the truth. And it will allow you to therefore um, avoid the pitfalls and stumblings that these lies can bring about in your Christian life. We have to understand that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian Not everyone who teaches the Bible is necessarily doing so accurately. And I am not saying for a moment that we are the only ones. That's not true at all. But what I am saying to you that as an individual attending this church, I encourage you like Paul encouraged the Bereans to always go back into the Word of God and to make sure that what we are saying is accurate and in accordance with Scripture. So we do not get off that beaten path. That we do not slide into error. Because as John then further warned us, he said the spirit of Antichrist is already here. And the ultimate deception will come in the last days as the Antichrist will deceive the entire world. So Jesus warns us from the very beginning. Beware of false prophets. Because the prophet in whom Moses had spoken of has come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into this world. 
And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We now more than ever need to be discerning Christians. Not critical, not judgmental, discerning. Knowing right from wrong. The Bible also tells us clearly that one of the things that will inhibit that discernment is immaturity. Not growing up in the Word of God, but staying in an arrested state of growth, staying in an adolescence position in my Christian faith, not knowing the Word of God, and therefore succumbing to the lies in which are presented. Hebrew tells us that very clearly. So let us be aware, let us be discerning Christians now more than ever. On our youth groups on Friday night, one of the challenges that Dina and I have had to try to overcome is the realization that the individuals there on those evenings are being bombarded with thousands of voices constantly. They are being berated with information each and every day through their handheld device. Today, instead of going to the library and researching a subject, we use Google, don't we? And of course, the first five websites must be right. They must be correct, you know, because Google would never manipulate those search results, would they? No, not at all. But berating an individual with so much information causes information overload. And signs and symptoms of that information overload are this. They have a hard time making decisions. They have a hard time committing to things. They have a hard time staying the course because they've been inundated with information and they don't know what to believe and they don't know what direction to go in. And so Dean and I purposely prayed for years, literally two, three years, that we could cut through all of the white noise with the truth of the Word of God. And I'm happy to say that we're starting to see the fruit of that. And it's been incredible to see what God is doing on Friday nights. But that being said, let us understand that as Christians, we now being, you know, just having a barrage of various opinions. And of course, everybody's opinion's right, correct? If I had to do my doctorate at this point, I would write on that the current idol of America is the personal opinion. I think that's an interesting concept. It's either that or... <laughs> what's that? Yeah, it is, Jeff. And... Uh, Right now, mine's the only one that counts. No. Um, But that being said, let us understand that we need to be more discerning now than ever. We have to, guys. We have to be able to discern right from wrong. And we are not going to do that apart from knowing God's Word thoroughly. Now, I want to tell you a little something. I believe every Christian with the Spirit of God within them can understand God's Word. God bless you. We're family here. It doesn't matter. That being said, I don't want anyone to feel discouraged. I could never understand the Old Testament. I could never understand the book of Revelation. Have you tried? Just start reading and see what the Lord does. It so saddens me to hear that 
when we talk to the individuals on Friday night, how many of them don't like to read anymore. And part of that is, has to do with the inundation of information. You cannot educate yourself on bullet points alone. You can't do it. But may I encourage you to ask God to help you in your personal Bible reading day in and day out. That's why I put the Scripture verses out there for our congregation, so you can read them in, in advance. You can look at the Scriptures that we are going to be studying on your own. And prepare your heart and your mind for the teaching. And then once we've gone through the teaching, go back and look at it again. To make sure that we're always going in the right direction. Because the second warning that he gives us is he says, beware of false prophets.